Kia ora, this is Anderson's Odyssey. I'm Jacob Anderson, and my guest today is agricultural economist Peter Fraser. Peter, it's great to have you on the podcast. Great to be here, Jacob. Peter, uh, we know that uh, farmers and agriculture is, you know, a core part of New Zealand, but we hear about some of the challenges that they face, but not necessarily some of the economic challenges that, that farmers have. There's a lot of, on, on small farms in particular, there's a lot of debt where they're trying to keep up with this corporate dairy um, world that we live in now from a lot of these conversions over the last few decades. How much risk is there or how do a lot of these small farms kind of deal with that potential debt if they can't service that um, and, and as they go into retirement or, or, or kind of move on? Uh Lots and lots of questions in there, so I want to start to un unpick it. I think it's first to, I think it's useful to get a little bit of a picture about what the situation actually is and then dig down because um, I'll, I'll sort of jump in early. I'm less concerned about the small farms, I'm more concerned about the corporates. I think the corporates are a mess. Um, and I think if anyone will be surviving, it will be the smaller guys. But again, there's a horses for courses story here and not every farm is the same. So let's start off with some big picture numbers. Um, current dairy debt in New Zealand is sitting around 42 billion. Now that's just a number unless you actually put a little bit of context around it. Now, Fonterra's payout last year, the amount of money they paid um, to their farmers. Remember, Fonterra is 80% of the industry, so it's a, it's a pretty good number. That was only about six and a half billion. So what they paid farmers for milk was only six and a half billion. So if you start to think about, in terms of income, six and a half, 42, that doesn't feel good. Um, and we can start to unpick how it doesn't feel good. Now, the industry, when it actually, when farmers sell their milk, they sell it in a measurement called kilograms of milk solids, which is basically milk with the water taken out. And so one kilogram of milk solids is roughly 12 litres of milk. Um, now we do 1.9 billion kilos of milk solids in New Zealand. So if you wanted to go and divide the total amount of debt amongst the total milk solids, you suddenly are sitting in around 22 odd dollars a kilo of milk solids. Now that's a lot. We start to dig a little bit deeper. Interest rates are historically low at the moment and probably going to get a little bit lower. But let's say that farmers are earning, and I'm using just as, just as, an, as an example, there'll be some farmers we're paying a little bit less than that, some farmers are paying a bit more. But let's say farmers are paying, on average, 4.5% across that $42 billion. The interest alone is $1.9 So the first dollar, on average, that farmers get goes to just paying debt. Now, how much do farmers get? Well, last year's Fonterra's payout was only $6.35. So you can suddenly start to see there's, there's, this 42 billion number is a big number and there's some context around it. But I want to jump in just a little bit deeper and telling you what the number's doing. When I first got interested in, in, in dairy debt was really during the 2008 GFC. And we looked at some numbers then and I'm talking about on-farm debt rather than Fonterra debt. And I'm talking about on-farm dairy debt. Between so that's, so that's the, the farm owners themselves? That's the farm owners. So between 2000, so I call it the, the turn of the millennium, and the point we're at then, which is about 2008, 2009, so you can say in a decade, uh, rule of thumb, dairy debt had gone up on-farm uh, from about $10 billion to about $30 billion. So it had tripled. But the milk supply 
had only gone up 60%. That didn't feel very good. Now, we were at the time quite hopeful that the dairy debt would then go down, uh, but it didn't. So if I take the same situation now, if we go from 2000 to 2020, so we've got 20 year time period now, dairy debt has now gone from 10 billion to the 42 billion I mentioned. Uh, milk production has gone up a little bit. It's now up about 66%. So what we've got is over a 400% increase in on-farm debt and only a two-thirds increase in milk production. Now, that's not a good number. So, so what we've got is a whole mess across the sector about this debt. And what I'm also worried about is I mentioned in 2008, 2009, it was about 30 um, it's now about 42. Um, and, you know, you can go and look at the Reserve Bank monetary reports over the last 10 years, and they've been boringly predictable in saying too much debt, too much debt, dairy debt's no good, too much debt, too much debt, too much debt. The real concern I have now is that we've had about three good seasons in terms of payout, and the debt's only stopped getting worse. And that's only because the banks have stopped lending. It's not that the farmers didn't want to borrow, it's the banks have stopped lending. But have the farmers actually paid anything back? Well, they actually paid hardly anything back. So it seems they seem to be stuck at this figure. They, they can't, you know, it, it becomes really quite difficult to pay back. Now, add on top of that, what was driving a lot of this um, debt borrowed expansion was the idea of untaxed capital gains. Yet a lot of the dairy land prices are now going down. And that's starting to push a lot of farmers towards negative equity. So, so what we've got here is, is, I hate the term that Fonterra uses all the time, which is perfect storm, because it, it sounds that it's unpredicted. Uh, this is predicted. It was predicted by myself, it was predicted by others a long time ago, and it's probably just easier to say it's just a mess. And so how do we get out of that situation if we seem to be stuck and they're, they're not getting any gains. I know that, you know, recently they've sold tip top. Um, and there's this question well, that, again, around- that's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the factory debt, that's, that's Fonterra's debt. Now there is a connection between the two and I'll talk about that in a minute. But remember, all I've talked about here is just what's happening down on the farm. Now we had a, a, a bit of an example of what happens when farmers go wrong be about 10, 12 years ago, when the Crafer farms went bankrupt. And what they did was just basically borrowed bucket loads of money, um, bought a whole lot of cheap land in the middle of nowhere, put a whole lot of irrigators on it, irrigated the living daylights out of it, and then stacked lots of cows on it. Um, completely unsuitable farming, completely unsuitable area, completely stupid, but it was going to make them a whole lot of money. Now, that ended up, they borrowed from memory, just shy of 200 million. I think it's 190 from, from memory. And it was a consortium of banks led by Westpac. So um, what happened when the Crafer farms basically went bankrupt, what, the, um, what Westpac and the consortium of, of banks did is they sold, sold it to Shanghai Pengsheng. I mean, you remember um, there was a lot of controversy at the time about Chinese ownership. So what happened at that time, there was this talk about the New Zealand land going out of New Zealand ownership. What that conversation didn't realise is the land was already out of New Zealand ownership effectively because it had so much debt attached to it. So what happened in the Crafer's case was that one foreign owner 
basically an Australian bank called Westpac, sold it to another foreign owner, um, Shanghai Pengsheng uh, from China. And, um, and that was that. Now, the problem we have now is that the option of overseas buyers coming and buying land has been severely circumscribed. So the ability to actually, for the banks to get their money out by selling it to another foreigner, that's very limited. So the farms basically have to go and pay it back out of their earnings. And that's kind of tough because if they could have done it, they've had 20 years to do it and they've not. And so as one, some areas are trying to, you know, I guess we're, we're kind of capped at our cow numbers now. We can't yep. go any further. The, the rules are yep. fixed there. So if, is, is the only way out really that, that these farmers then sell and then cross their fingers? Or it seems like we're kind of just stuck in this debt cycle and there's a lot of issues. I mean, the, I mean it's, it's now, you know, moving from the, from the um, farm, farm side of it into the bank side of it, um, it's no secret around rural lending um, quarters that a lot of the banks are extremely uncomfortable, the Australian banks in particular. And to be honest, if you're talking about New Zealand, the Australian banks are the only banks that matter because what we've done as a country is decided to outsource our entire banking industry to the Australians. That's kind of what we do. Um, but the Australian banks are really very uncomfortable with their exposure of agricultural debt. Now, um, when we start to break that down, and work out um, where it sits, and we start to look through the various, um, various. Um, hang on a hey, I'm on a Zoom call at the moment, so can you, whatever you're doing, can you do that later, please? Yeah, thank you. Sorry about that. That's all right. That's why I closed the door. Yeah, thank you. Sorry about that. Yeah, it's it's really distracting when someone's um, working in the um, in the background. Yeah, if you if you start to look across the banks, um, ANZ's got a fairly good book. Um, they've gotten rid of about the last eighteen months, two years. They've gotten rid of a lot of their difficult customers, uh, mainly to places like uh, Westpac and BNZ. Um, BNZ's not in great shape. Uh, the word on the block is if they could sell their entire portfolio, they'd sell their entire portfolio. Um, ASB's done some severe retrenching. Uh, officially, they are open for business. Um, what they've also done is, is gotten rid of a whole lot of their rural staff who have gone and turned up at Rabo. So, so there's, there's a whole story about the banks want to reduce their exposure to New Zealand agriculture in general and New Zealand dairy in particular. I mean, the, the farming uh, media has talked about the banks wanting to take a billion dollars worth of debt out of Northland and out of Southland. So, so we're talking about the banks, they want their money back. And to be honest, if I was them, I kind of want the money back too. Now, what's been actually quite helpful for the farmers is a thing called COVID-19. Because what was driving a lot of the banks' um, uh, concern were rules from the Reserve Bank around having to increase their reserve asset ratios. Basically, they had to strengthen their balance sheets um, with exposure to uh, New Zealand dairy debt in particular. Now, with COVID-19, the um, banks or the Reserve Bank has actually relaxed that for a period of time. So it's not the same sort of pressure that they're under. But nevertheless, be, be under no um, illusion that the banks want their money back and they've got a lot of exposure to New Zealand. And they're, they're looking at things like land prices going down, 
they're looking at the issue of um, even with very good payouts, um, farmers can't uh, pay the debt back. And one of the reasons farmers can't pay the debt back is because they're just not very profitable and they've got so much bloody debt to begin with. I mean, the Reserve Bank um, put out a figure that I think it's 25% of dairy farms break even at a payout of $6.20. Now, last year's payout was only $6.35. And a lot of years, it's below that. So you, you can sort of see that, that for, those, for, those, uh, for those farms, it's really tough. And when I talked about the $42 billion and, and all of those figures at the beginning of the, um, of the call, um, I also want you to remember that that's not normally distributed. While I've talked about $22 on average across the sector, that's not the case. What you've got is something like 20 to 30% of the farms have something like 70 to 80% of the debt. So there's a big lopsided about who holds most of the debt. And this is back to the original um, uh, sort of question you, you raised. The ones that have most of the debt is actually the corporates. Now, some of the smaller guys have gone and pulled on debt as well, um, and that will hurt them. Uh, but the ones that have really gone and expanded and, 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 and done the extensive growth into completely unsuitable areas, that's been the corporates. There's a, there's a call for um, looking at you know, value-added products instead of these kind of bulk milk-solid, um, this kind of approach, I guess, or intensive farming approach. But there's a lot of challenges, and we're not seeing a lot of this value-added um, uptake on the farms, more or less. Why, if, if, that, if that's the kind of the way forward in terms of environmental protection, but also changing the way that we perceive the way we farm in, in New Zealand and also trying to help with some of the, the issues that we have, why haven't we seen that or why haven't we seen those changes? Um, there's two reasons. Now, the first reason is that 80% of our milk goes to a company called Fonterra. And the problem with Fonterra is it doesn't do value-add. Now, we can have a great big conversation around that, but the short version of that is it doesn't do value-add. The other 20% of the milk goes to basically everybody else, and they range from firms that also don't really do value-add. Um, a good example of that would be open country dairies. Um, their philosophy is they think there is good money in commodities um, and they think that if you're a lean, mean player, you can be a very good commodity uh, broker. And they are. They're an extremely good company. So there's no pejorative here about open country at all. They, they, have, they have looked at what Fonterra does and they do it better than Fonterra. And then you can go the whole way through to the other companies. You're looking at your, at your Miracas of the world um, and then you're starting to look at your Sinlays and you're looking at your Tartuas of the world. Now, the Sinlays and Tartuas have tried to go, on, go into either higher value ingredients or finished products and finished products as a large proportion of what they do. Um, and, you know, that's great. But hey, here's the, here's the problem with it is that if you're going to go into a fast-moving consumer goods or a, a finished products play, that's really expensive. You need to actually invest a lot of money in R&D to be able to do that. And that means you actually require a bigger return um, on, your, um, on your investment for actually putting in there. So there's two sides of the coin. You need to put more money into the company to be able to do it 
and you need a bigger return back. Now, Fonterra basically spoils both of those. Fonterra sets the milk price in New Zealand because it's allowed to set its own milk price. And by picking up 80% of the milk, it's the de facto milk price for the entire country. Um, now, they purposely overpay what the actual Fonterra can afford to pay. So not only does that vertically foreclose Fonterra, it means that it, it basically, they're paying too much. By paying too much, that reduces their profitability. By reducing their profitability, that makes it incredibly difficult for them to do retained earnings. If they can't do retained earnings, they've got no money to invest in the higher value products or the, or the higher value streams. So that's why they don't do them. As simple as that. But the problem is, for the other companies, they have to match Fonterra's higher price. So that reduces the return that they make because they're having to pay too much for the milk as well. So it means it makes it incredibly difficult for them to go up market as well. So what Fonterra has done is, in a nutshell, is lock New Zealand into a commodity trap. Well done, Fonterra. So in, in five or ten years, if we... If we see the, the you know value added path taking place how is that possible if we're not seeing any um innovation or any way to kind of do that at the moment yeah well i mean you know the, the, i mean my my own crystal ball um failed a ten thousand k service about twelve thousand k's ago so i'm not really very keen on doing huge predictions in the future um but I think you can make, I think you can put up some, some reasonable scenarios. If you were to ask the industry, the industry would say that we've got one of the best dairy industries in the world. In fact, they'll tell you we've got the best dairy industry in the world. There's a story about cows on grass and meat to meat to meat to meat and all that sort of stuff like that. So they'd say we've got a great, great system. And, and they'd say that we've got 98.5% of our fences, that our streams are being fenced and our cows are happy and, and, and stuff of that sort of nature. So they'd tell you there's actually not really very much that needs to be changed. And I'd say is that all we need to do is get the rest of the world who are wanting to have more proteins and more milk and milk part of their, their diet and milk part of their future and give it to the kids and all that sort of thing like that. We just have to just go and get it to market. So we have to keep on doing what we're doing. So the argument from the industry would be is do we need to change this? No, don't need to change at all. Got a good industry. If anything, what we need to do is get the government off our back and the greenies off our back and the townies off our back um, so we can actually go out and do stuff because we're the backbone of the economy. I mean, that's the sort of argument that I'd give. Um, if I was to look around, I think the big exogenous threat to the New Zealand dairy industry um, is the rise of alternative and, and, and synthetic proteins. Now, I know there's other people who have commented on that, so I don't want to go and dance over, over that particular ground again. But I think the take-home message is if the hype is correct then the reality is New Zealand dairy industry is toast in a decade 2030 it's gone and and do you think because I mean at the moment we're seeing a lot of the alternative proteins particularly from um, the meat side of things but the milk is probably a little bit slower in terms of the innovation but do you imagine that's where we're going to have this um, transition in New Zealand from kind of widespread dairy farming into then alternative uh, proteins rather than a sort of um, a gradual change or a conversion like we did with sheep to dairy? 
I mean, if the if what with if what happens if as I said, you know, the, the big if here is that I don't know whether the alternative proteins and, and synthetic proteins are to um, milk and milk products what um, some synthetic nylon and, and other man-made fibres were to wool. Um, because it wool's toast now. I mean, you can jump back even as late as the 1980s. You had papers coming out of Massey that were looking at, um, they called them the Asian tigers, you know, the, the Taiwan, Singapore, Hong Kong, uh, South Korea. And they said that as these countries industrialise, they develop a middle class. And they said that once they develop middle class, middle-class people will want what we have in the West because obviously what we have in the West is great and they don't have 4,000 years of their own culture and they just want to ape the West because that's what people in the West think that the rest of the world should be doing. And they said, look, what they will want is carpets. They will want to go and put all through their apartments carpets. And what this massive paper said is there will not be enough sheep in New Zealand to produce enough strong wool by the year 2000 to sustain the demand for these carpets and it never came. And you know why it didn't come? Because they did carpet their uh, apartments, but they did it with nylon. And that's the real, you know, so if the synthetic and alternatives um, uh, are that sort of, this is, this is not a evolution, this is a disruption and a replacement and a supplanting. There is no coexistence story here. I'd like to tell you there's a coexistence story, but there's not. And, and that's simply because the 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 cost. I mean, at the moment, the cost is, in particular, with the with the alternative meats. We don't have many alternative uh, uh, milks so far. Um, they are still more expensive than the traditional meats, or you know, grass-fed um, beef, for example. But eventually, that yep. price will come down, and then the dairy industry will not be able to compete, and there will only be perhaps high-end products like we were talking about before, but we don't have those really at this stage. Yeah, I'm not even, I'm not even very, very um, um, optimistic about the high-end products because we, we kind of fool ourselves that we don't have to feed the world. We just have to find 42 million rich folks and feed them and they'll pay a premium. Um, the problem is, is that when you look at the, the rise of the alternatives, and, and I want to split it into two, two types here there's and this is my my terminology and if anyone wants to copy it you're more than welcome to to do so um it's what i call the alternatives they're the plant-based products so that's when you're trying to get peas and and peas pretend that they're milk or peas pretend that they are a hamburger patty so that's that's your that's your alternatives now what you can get through other processes such as your precision fermentation are what i call the alternatives where and again there's there's people who are, are much more skilled on this than than i am but but as a bare small brain um it's effectively putting for example milk proteins into a photocopier and you just produce them now remember if you get and i think this just neatly illustrates just how resource intense the dairy industry is and how much um they're at threat to get one liter of milk, which is only one twelfth of a kilogram of milk solids, you need to get 1,000 liters of water to make that one liter of milk. Now the actual milk protein part of that um, one liter is only 3.3%. 3 
So what do we do in New Zealand? We burn an enormous amount of coal to burn all that water off. So what the, what the synthetics um, promise to do is just basically start with a 3.3% and put in a photocopier. Well, you don't that... need the cow. You don't need the 1,000 litres. So in terms of your cost, your cost is only a fraction and it doesn't have the environmental footprint. It seems inevitable that we will go in that direction. I know a lot of um, people argue that it won't, but in my opinion, I, I can't see a future that doesn't do that. But we're still, it appears we're still reluctant to have these mature conversations in New Zealand, and we're still trying to hold our, our kind of our look, agricultural look, sector actually, with a high standard. We actually kid ourselves that, I mean, the agriculture is the backbone of the economy. It's three, um, dairy industry is about three and a half percent of the economy. Uh, and that's including manufacturing. Kind of suggests there's 96 and a half percent that isn't. Now, yes, they, they are a very, very big percentage of our exports. About 25% of our exports are dairy products. So, again, well done dairy industry. But here's the quid pro quo of it. We think we're a good exporter. New Zealand is a rubbish exporter. Our exports as a percentage of GDP are pathetic. And one of the reasons it's pathetic is that the goods we actually export and we have the comparative advantage in, um, which are, uh, are basically agricultural products, they've been, since World War II, agricultural products have been the slowest growth in terms of cross-border trade. So, so there's been, if you've, say, gone and jumped onto things like steel and manufactured goods, and you go into the international market, then it's like a big locomotive that pulls your economy along. But we've got the traction engine, and the traction engine is called the, is called the dairy sector. I mean, it's just not that flash. And we seem to have that too with, uh, with forestry, right? We're exporting these logs, and then, and then uh, there's, there's no kind of value to them, and then we actually have to, in some cases, I understand, import them. I don't know anything about that. But do you, what, what are your thoughts around some of these foreign sales, and other, do they have benefits to some of these communities? Um, or, or do they have disadvantages? Or do, do you have much thought on, on those kind of foreign ownership models? Well, I mean, there's, there's again, there's two ways to answer that. And, and the first one is it, it's very case dependent. I mean, you can have good foreign investment and bad foreign investment. Um, so there's nothing good or bad about foreign investment per se. But hey, here's, here's a concern that I have when I got asked about, well, what do you think about the selling of the Kraper farms? Um, you know, 12 years ago. And my, my response back then was, Māori didn't do very well when we found that we didn't own the land anymore. In fact, that ended really badly for us. So I think actually selling the land is a really bad thing to do. Because we, we've got an experience of it, didn't work well last time. And do you think... Um, when you think about that that model, I guess, for example, if we if if, if there is this debt though, and, and this is what there's talk about currently with COVID about having some foreign money come in, is that going to help us? Um, or I mean, obviously, it's it's difficult to kind of forecast, and there's a quite a a split uh, of opinions around foreign investment 
for, for a number of reasons, not just in, in agriculture, but in general right now to kind of give us some cash injection, do you think that that's a good approach or do you think that we should kind of err on the side of caution? Well, I mean, it depends. Again, it depends on, on what it is. Um, the The ability to buy farms now has been has been substantially reduced. It, it's pretty damn tough. Um, so I'm not, not terribly worried about that. So where the investment tends to go into is in terms of factories. Either they buy out an existing factory, or they or they go off and they and they build their own. And, and again, there's a number of uh, Chinese dairy companies that have gone off and, and done both. I mean, you can see what Yili's done in the South Island. They've gone and bought built a factory, their own plant, and then they, they went off and bought Westland. So, so they've actually done both. Now, if you look at the Westland case, because there's a good example of foreign investment, the problem with Westland was they were broke. Um, and the farmers didn't have any money to recapitalise it. And if, the, if, if you've got a broke company, the farmers don't have the money to, re, to recapitalise it, um, then it's got to go somewhere. And, and, and so, so it got sold to... I mean, the tragedy is, is that is that a firm like Fonterra, or no one had the money in New Zealand to basically buy it. No one had the money in New Zealand to buy Tip Top. So, you know, that's it. I mean, so that was, uh, the story we had there with, with Westland was not, was it a good thing or a bad thing? It was the only option on the block. And again, another interesting point with Westland is that a whole lot of the banks were very, very keen to have the sale. Because once they got the sale, it means the farmers got paid out their shares in the Whistling Cooperative. And the banks basically wanted that money to get, get their money back by forcing the farmers to pay their debt back. So, again, this whole thing is, is what we used to call in the army, a bit of a self-looking ice cream. Um, it, it is what it is. And so, I mean, it's hearing you speak, it sounds much like business as usual unless there's some sort of regulation or some disruption which is as it seems going to be coming in the next few years or a little bit after that um is that are they the only two real kind of ways to kind of get out of a lot of this do you think uh basically because I mean, either uh, if, if you have a great big exogenous shock happens, um, you know, some synthetic um, alternative proteins would be the, would be the obvious one. Um, in New Zealand, the power of the dairy industry is such that it, it just is lobbying power. I mean, a phrase I, I used once in an interview was that the, the, that the dairy industry is New Zealand's answer to the NRA and that it's a lobby that's incredibly powerful, incredibly well-connected, um, and has a, um, an effect that's asymmetric to what it actually does. Um, so we're seeing already the, the, the white-handing of, 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 of quite sensible freshwater regulations. Um, well, you know, there's, there's, I can almost see the arguments coming out now, don't bite the hand that feeds you, don't mess with success, all of, all of those sort of things, which is basically saying we don't want to have change. We, we still have a God-given right to do what we're doing now and we want to keep on doing it. So unless the government grows the spine and actually imposes some rules on the dairy industry and in particular actually makes regional councils police those and not go through endless examples of 
education and warnings and all that sort of stuff and actually start enforcing it, then nothing will change because the dairy industry doesn't want it to change. And if what the dairy industry doesn't want doesn't happen, that's how things work in New Zealand. I mean, what you've got to remember is that once you understand that 5 million cows are more important than 5 million people, you've just understood how politics works in New Zealand. Until you understand that, nothing makes sense. Once you understand that, everything makes sense. Peter, it's, uh, it's been fantastic talking to you uh, today. It's been really interesting insights, so uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks very much. Cheers, everyone.